This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty, and my guest today, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. Alma, forgive me if I don't, but I'm going to try my best. <laughs> Alma Ohini Opari. Is that correct? That's the best you can do. <laughs> <laughs> Will you say your full name for us, please? So in Ghana, where I'm originally from, my name will be pronounced Alma Ohini Opari. All right. Yes. I was pretty close then, right? You'll give me credit, won't you? For an American. Yes. Pretty close. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started then, because unfortunately, Alma only has so much time with us tonight, and we want to pack it all in there. So we are going to do that. Alma, I understand then, you mentioned Ghana. That's a small town in Wyoming, correct? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's just a hop, skip, and a swim across the ocean for about eight hours um, <laughs> on a flight to West Africa. Yeah. What is life like in Ghana? Do we comprehend, can we understand as Americans what life is like there? Well, I would say just like anywhere else, um, it depends on your circumstances. And so um, for some people, life is pretty good. Um, and so one of the things I used to tell people when they would ask me about Ghana is I'll say, in Ghana, you can have everything that you see in America in terms of material possessions, except the only difference is in, in, in America, I guess it would say, when I'm in America, the one thing that I can't get is, you know, the kind of food that we eat in Ghana. <laughs> but if you have enough money, you could basically live the same kind of life that you live here. However, the main thing about Africa, I would say in general, is not about what people have or don't have. It's about the extremes. You have the extreme poverty, and then you also have extreme wealth. So you see people who live in much bigger houses than I see in the U.S., um, and people who seem to drive better cars than I see sometimes in the U.S., and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a huge spectrum. But the biggest challenge, I would say, is that there isn't a very big middle class. People who are doing really well, and then you have a lot of people who you know, make it on a few dollars a day and that's it. And so that's that's the main difference I would say is the 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 gap is much wider and there doesn't seem to be, you know, a big middle class, but it's changing a little bit um, over time. It's, it's changing a little bit. Your mom taught you a love for America. Where did that love for her come from? Really good question. So my mom went to a Catholic high school in Ghana. And while she was there, she was one of the top students, um, top science students, and she participated in an essay competition. And during that process, she actually won. And she was, either, I think she was one of the finalists and the grand prize for 
uh, winning this competition was to come to America as an exchange student. And so this was organized by the AFS program. And so my mom had the opportunity to come to New York and she uh, basically spent the final year or her senior year of high school in New York. So that's how my mom came to America initially. Was she in the city, like New York City or outside of the city? She was not in the city. She okay. was close to the border of um, New York and Pennsylvania. Okay. She lived in a small town called Sherman. So it's Sherman, New York. All right. It's quite upstate, but it's on the way to upstate New York. Okay, because I was thinking that would be eye-opening for anyone to go to New York City, but she was probably a little more comfortable, I would think, than being in the city, being on the outskirts or being in a small town, as I would be more comfortable that way, because that would be quite a shock. <laughs> New York is definitely, yeah, it, it's quite a shock for even Americans exactly. who, who come from small towns and so on, going to New York and seeing all the skyscrapers and so on. So yeah, um, that would have definitely been a culture shock for her. And um, at the same time, also, the most of us, and my mom grew up in the capital of Ghana, so it was pretty mm. developed. Um, she was also met with the second culture shock, which was, you know, basically living on a farm <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Sherman, <laughs> New York. So that she, sounds pretty she good. The culture shock on both sides. The giant city of New York, which she had to go through um, to get to her little small town in Sherman, New York. What was it about America that she fell in love with that she wanted to pass on to you? Um, I think her her experience taught her that everything or anything is possible here, right? Well, one of the challenges that I feel personally um, in Ghana and in other places, and this is not limited to Africa, but um, in places that are developing is that you have a mismatch between ambition and opportunity. And when there is a mismatch between ambition and opportunity, then people who are ambitious get frustrated. And that frustration, the question is, what do you do with that frustration, right? And a lot of people like me would seek other opportunities. And so usually you learn of, of people who will leave or will make you know very difficult sacrifices to get out. So, and the goal is to get to a place where you can match your ambition with your opportunity. And I think that's that's the goal of the immigrant is I want to go to a place where my ambition can match the opportunities that are available. And so for her, being in America gave her that insight into a place where anything is possible, right? Anything is possible. However, she was only here for a year. She lived here for a year and then she went back to Ghana and she felt her calling was in Ghana and that's perfectly fine as well. And, and her calling was to help educate people and free them and bridge that gap between opportunity and ambition. That was her goal. And so she spent um, her life, dedicated her life to educating children. And one of her slogans was, education is the key to economic opportunity. Education is the only thing that you can acquire that nobody can take away from you. And so if you arm children with education, you open their their minds and you open the limits of their opportunities. And, and once you've done that for them, they can't be 
oppressed any longer. They can't be bottled up because now they understand their potential. And that is the greatest gift you can give to a child. So that was her ambition. That was her dream. And she made sure we were all part of that dream um, by involving her in everything she did, uh, involving us, her children, in everything that she did. Your mom passed away from cancer. Is that correct? She did. And I yes. know that was a big blow for your family. Yes, definitely. Um, she was the engine for all the work that they were, were doing in Ghana. You know, she started her school in 1989 without any background in education, but she felt the call to, to give something that she felt was necessary for these kids to give them hope, to give them opportunity. And she felt the way she could do that is through education. And so she started with 11 kids um, and, and she built that school to the point where all her children, all my many of my cousins were able to graduate from her schools. And then from there, many of us came back and were employed by her schools and became teachers, administrators, and so on and so forth. So she did not only educate us, but she also gave us our first jobs and allowed us to participate in the work that she was doing, um, which is part of the reason why I do what I'm doing today, because I learned the confidence and the courage to stand in front of kids and to teach and to impart knowledge and to explain things. And, and that's a gift that that experience gave me that I think has been really valuable um, to my life today. Has that legacy through school continued past her life? Yes. Oh, so awesome. She, she built the school, like I said, in 1989. The school has been in existence since then. That legacy still exists, but needs a little bit of support and help. So we're hoping, we're trying to, you know, raise the necessary funds to kind of support the operations. But my sister and um, my two sisters are currently um, running the show over there and um, they're doing their best and we're trying to, you know, help them from here. You mentioned that Ghana has a very small middle class. Do you see the middle class shrinking in America? And if so, is that something to worry about? Because my dad always said that the middle class is the backbone of America and we're the ones who pay for everything. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is quite true. Um, so just to be very clear, I have lived a longer time in the U.S. than I ever lived in my own country. Oh, wow. Um, I crossed that mark this year. What I say about my country is this, that I didn't grow up. My adult, all my adult life has been lived in the US um, because I came here at 19. I don't purport to understand everything um, that goes on there. And so some things I may say, or the perceptions I may have may not necessarily be 100% accurate. So I wanna preface that, but um, in terms of the middle class in America being the backbone, I agree wholeheartedly with that idea. You have extremes, of course, but the middle class is the stable source of tax revenue for the government. It is the stable source of, you know, the, the workforce that drives this economy forward. And the question about whether the middle class is shrinking, I think it depends, right? I think it depends. On, on where you live. I don't think America 
has lack of opportunity. So if people perceive that the middle class is shrinking, the question I ask is, why is that the case? Because people in Africa, people in, in you know South America, they still see this place as the place of opportunity. So what are they seeing that Americans are not seeing, right? What are people like me seeing that Americans are not seeing? So I think if the middle class is shrinking, it's probably because of a lack of trust in the system rather than an actual lack of opportunity mm. in America. And I think that's what is more threatening to America today is this apathy towards the position that America is in in the world. And then also, it seems like on the edges, there is a sense of contempt for America's position in the world, the idea of American exceptionalism, even the idea of capitalism in general. It's like we have a generation or you know, a growing generation that are rejecting some of the foundations of the success of America. And by so doing, even when opportunities are before them, it's hard to see those opportunities when you are mired in this kind of um, self-pity and also mired in this kind of um, bashing of your own estate, right? And, and so I tell people, if you think America is bad, I know a thousand people who will swap places with you like right now. And that's what I feel is happening is this loss of a sense of identity about America. And my hope, I've called myself a cheerleader for America. My hope is that we can rekindle not only among people like me, our generation, but also especially among the youth, this idea of America as the bastion of freedom and a place that can be looked at as the shining city on the hill that people can flow to and flourish because of it. Amen, Alma. I could not have said it better myself. You spoke the words. <laughs> You're right on point as far as I'm concerned. What brought you here at 19? All right. So <laughs> this is actually kind of interesting to me, but um, when I, I, I actually graduated high school at 16 and I applied to go to um, a college in the U.S., but my parents, of course, no parent would allow their child to go <laughs> out That's of the scary. continent at 16 when I had no you know, connections or anything like that. So my parents actually hired me to work in their school for a couple of years while I was waiting uh, to turn 18. I then, because of that, I started college in Ghana and I did one year. So then I transferred, I, I applied to be a transfer student um, to a college here in the US. So that was my plan all along to come to college here. But um, as many of you know, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And as part of that, most uh, men at 19 uh, apply to go and serve missions. Now, I expected that I was going to be called somewhere in Africa. Normally, most people in Ghana were called to Nigeria. And so that's what I expected in general that I would go to. But then I opened that mission call and it said you know, you're hereby called to serve in Los Angeles, California. And that was a shock and a surprise. So I wanted to come to America to go to school, but I ended up coming to America for the first time as a missionary. And for me, that is quite interesting because, you know, we talk about history and how missionaries came from Europe 
and brought Christianity into Africa and so on. And now for me, I felt like I was almost like fulfilling some calling to now reciprocate <laughs> and bring Christianity from Africa back into the lives of the people of Los Angeles. And so that that was quite interesting to me. And um, so that's how I got here. I came here as a missionary and served in Los Angeles for two years. And then after that, you went to school. Exactly. So after my mission, um, after two years, I went back home for a few weeks and then I returned to go to school at uh, BYU in Provo, Utah. Was your intention to stay after you graduated? What were your plans? Good question. So my plans from the beginning, um, I always felt like this was the place where my dreams were going to come true, <laughs> right? And this is the, the thing that I said in the beginning, that the gap between ambition and opportunity still existed for me in Ghana. And so I felt like in Ghana, I could daydream about all the things I wanted, but there was never, for me at least, a clear vision of how I could achieve some of those things. And for some reason, I believed that I could do that in America. And I felt like in, in America, I could dream freely. And, and so when I got here, uh, I just soaked in every opportunity I could get. And I knew that this is where I wanted to be. This is where I wanted to raise my kids. And, and so um, even though I had to go through a, a process of being a non-immigrant and then eventually an immigrant and then eventually a citizen, I knew in my heart, you know, that at some point, if I had the opportunity, I would love to, to be able to stay here and be an American. It was never guaranteed. And so it was part of my prayer every day for that opportunity and eventually came true after 18 years. But it was never guaranteed, and I had to hope and pray every day for that dream to be a possibility. You have a unique perspective on America for a couple of different reasons. You are a Black man from Ghana, and you come to Utah, <laughs> which if anybody knows anything about Utah, it's not exactly um, a bunch of cultures together. I mean... We're pretty, for lack of a better term, I don't want to say bland, but <laughs> a lot of us are pretty much the same. So you're going to stick out a little bit when you come here, Alma. Was that ever uncomfortable for you? Really good question. So when I came initially, so, and I'll start with you know, going back a little bit, when I came to Los Angeles. I landed in Los Angeles, and for the first time in my life, I was a minority, right? Oh, wow. And that was a very strange feeling, right? As I got out of the plane and I saw the people um, all over, I realized that I am a minority. I, you know, And it was a very strange and interesting feeling. I never felt that before. And as we drove to my apartment, looking at the cars, I'm like, all white people. Right? It was very different for me. And, and so that was mainly the, the kind of shock, culture shock that I had. Um, and I so in two years serving in Los Angeles, I kind of got over that piece a little bit because I had you know served for two years um, all over Los Angeles. And so it wasn't too much of a shock to be a minority in Utah. In Provo, Utah. However, in Provo, Utah. <laughs> However, there is one thing that I think is so important, which should be um, 
something that Americans should really think about, which is the fact that a lot of the things that divide us today as a society, a lot of the things that we fight over, a lot of the experiences that we talk about, a lot of all these things seem to disappear when you have something else in common with someone else. This is the this is the honest truth, which is the fact that I feel so much more comfortable in Utah than I would have probably felt anywhere else, even coming straight from Africa. And the reason is because in Utah, I had something in common with the people, even though they didn't look like me, even though they had you know a different culture, but we had something that mattered more to us than we had in common. And for us, that was our, our religion. And, and so I could walk into any church building, I could walk into any, any neighborhood, and I could immediately feel welcome because I was the music was familiar. The you know, the the processes, the the everything was familiar. There was nothing that was foreign. I believe, and this is kind of a, a, a tangent, but I believe that one of the ways that we can eliminate these differences and and issues about cohesion that we have in America is to find something that we can all flock to some kind of philosophy, some kind of ideals that we can all share in common. And for me, it is patriotism and a love for our country. That is the thing that I believe can put us back together. Because when you have that thing in common, suddenly all the other distractions fall away. Then suddenly skin color doesn't matter because we are American. Right? We are American. We have something in common. We share a set of values, right? I want that feeling of if I travel outside of America, I'm over somewhere in the middle of the jungle somewhere, and I see somebody and they tell me I am American, to immediately feel like, ah, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm at home because this is someone I know I share something with. And I think that's the thing we're losing in America. And that's part of the reason why we have the despair that people feel about the economic opportunity, about their situations in life, about the country in general, because we've lost that cohesion, because we've lost the thread that binds us together. You are speaking to my soul, Alma. You really are <laughs> speaking truth here. And I think what you said is just phenomenal because it is absolutely true. And what is it? Abraham Lincoln says a house divided against itself cannot stand. We are being ripped apart by forces who don't want to see a strong America. And whether that comes from the outside or inside, we as the American people, we the people have more in common, I believe, like you said, than we do that is different. But yet the media or these other forces are superb about tearing us apart. Exactly. So if you see behind me right now, the name of my podcast is Restitch America. And, and the reason I picked that is I, I, I envisioned in my mind the American flag torn apart at the seams. And I envisioned that this is this is basically the state of our country right now. And there's nobody on the national stage who is dedicating their work and their life 
to finding a way for us to be citizens again, finding a way for us to care about each other again, finding a way for us to look beyond the chasms that have been created by pundits, by charlatans in the media, all these things that have been used, devices that have been used to, to tear us apart. There's nobody in the public square who has a large you know, media influence or who has the necessary platform who is pushing a sense of unity. To the contrary, you're finding people who are saying we need a national divorce. You're finding people who are saying we need to secede. We're finding people who are saying, you know, move out of the red uh, red states to blue states or move out of blue states to red states. So eventually we have nothing in common as a country. And unfortunately, it's, it's not a great position to be in as a pundit, you know, because it's hard if you want a good following <laughs> on, on social media nowadays. It's almost like you have to lean in to one side or the other. And it's it's hard to get the traction that is needed when you are someone who's trying to kind of pull things together. Um, that's what I hope that not only me, but people can do, that we can look at the bigger picture and say, what do we have in common as Americans? Because on, you know, people talk about 9-11 and how it brought us together. Um, I, I think about it this way. <laughs> And I, I, I've made this analogy before. I think about it in terms of the movie Monsters, Inc. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll make, I'll make the, <laughs> I'll explain this analogy here. Okay. 9-11, really scary event. Really, really scary event that brought us together because it brought us to a point where we said we have so much more in common than divides us. And on 9-12, you know, we were a country united, right, because of that tragedy. In Monsters, Inc., this society existed believing that the only way they could power their system was to make people scream, right? That was their philosophy. That tragedy, the tragedy of someone else is what they needed in order to power their society until they discovered that that was a that was a lie that there was something much more powerful than tragedy right and they discovered that it was in this world making people laugh was much more important and much more you know had much more power than causing them to be in tragedy and so think about that i think the same thing applies that there are people today who are saying man Maybe we need another thing like a 9-11 to bring us together. And I say, why? Why do we need a tragedy to bring us together? We need to rekindle what it means to be American. We need to rekindle what it means to be part of this society. And if we can rekindle what true patriotism is, then maybe we discover that much more powerful than tragedy, it is a sense of patriotism and a sense of shared values that can bring us together and create the prosperous society we want. And I'm hoping that I can be a vessel to communicate that to the world.
Why are so many Americans, specifically young Americans in their 20s, I would say, maybe early 30s, so enamored with socialism? What are they seeing that is that the rest of us can't see or understand what it is that they find so appealing? Where are they wrong? So the way I look at it is this. As human beings, we crave a sense of safety, right? We crave a sense of safety. And because of that craving, um, we yearn for this level of comfort that America has been known for for a long time. So I tell people here that in, in Ghana, I couldn't afford to be depressed. <laughs> Most people can't afford to, to, you know, to not work, right? Most people have to subsist on very little. And so there's not a lot of brain power left over to go worry about things that are not like important. And I feel that we have a sense of um, comfort and that sense of comfort has led to this kind of expectation that if only the government can provide these certain things, you know, that would make us happy. And what people don't realize is the importance of, I, let me rephrase it this way. What people don't realize is that freedom is the basis of happiness. Freedom is the basis of happiness. You can kidnap somebody, lock them up in a room, and give them everything they ever wanted. Will they be happy because they have the food, the clothing, the shelter? Will they be happy in those circumstances? Would you come back a year later and say, hey, you have everything you need, but you can't leave this room? Like, is that what is going to give them happy? And most people will say correctly that, no, that's not going to make me happy because I am not free. And I think what is missing is people have taken freedom so, so much for granted because that's all they've known to the point where they think that freedom is a given and they don't realize that it is in uh, maintaining that freedom that we actually gain happiness. And so when they see a system like socialism and what it promises is, hey, we will give you, you know, the government will supply this and supply that. They will just tax the rich and bring it over to us. And we will have our basic needs met. They don't realize that the bargain that you have to do to get that is to give up your freedom. And somehow you hear these, you know, millennial pundits who claim, well, we can do it a little better. We wouldn't do it like, you know, it's been done in other places. And the question I always ask them is this. I say, what do you do in a socialistic system with people like me who refuse to comply? Mm. What do you do with those people? And if your answer is, oh, well, you can live a capitalistic, a capitalistic life and we would have nothing to do with you. then I tell you, socialism will not work because in a world where people can choose to not participate, most people will not. So the only, the only society in which socialism can take root is a society that is willing to take away people's freedom. 
And because you have to take away people's freedom, no matter what you give them, they will never be happy. And so people assume that they will be happy when they have place to stay and you know three square meals. I promise you, in prison, people have a place to stay and three square meals. There are not a lot of happy people in prison. Did you know, Alma, there is a Twilight episode where a man dies and he's given everything he wants, everything he's ever wanted, he gets, and he thinks that he's in heaven. And as time goes by, he realizes how miserable he is. And guess where he realizes he is? He's in hell. My husband will tell my kids about that from time to time when they're complaining about things, because yeah, you have to work to get what you want. If you have nothing to work for, then what is there? You have no desire, you have no inkling, you have motivation to improve and to be better when everything is given to you. And then, yeah. And then, like you said, there are people who, well, if everything's given to me, then I'm not even going to try. Who cares? I'll let somebody else do it. Exactly. And it's a self-defeating proposition and people don't realize it until they're stuck in it. It's a completely self-defeating proposition because when you look at people who have a lot of wealth, you find out their children are usually pretty screwed. (laughs) Why is that? They have everything. And how many times do I watch the news and I say, man, this guy has all the money in the world. Why does he, why is he, you know, depressed? Why is he, you know, struggling with alcohol and drug addiction and all these different things when they have everything? So I believe as a Christian that, the devil has an interest in telling you that having things is going to give you happiness. But what people don't realize is that it is in working for the things you have that you get your value. It is in working for the things you have that you gain self-confidence. It is in working for the things you have that you gain self-worth and dignity. And it is that dignity that eventually returns happiness to you. And so there is no amount of happiness that you can gain from allowing people to do things for you that you should be able to do for yourself. You're hitting every nail on the head tonight, Alma. You're on fire. You're lit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so that's my message to, to the young people out there, that this is a law of nature. And you cannot escape it, that the butterfly has to break out of its cocoon to come out. And if you go and say, let me help it, because it's struggling too much, you end up creating a defective butterfly. What is it? Isn't the mama birds who throw their their baby birds out of the nest? So they can exactly. And, and you get that everywhere. Even the, even the plants have to break out of the ground to get out into the sun. So imagine the seed that says, man, the ground is too hard. I need someone to dig it out for me. Those seeds never germinate. This is a law of nature. And that is what we need to teach our kids, that you can't escape this law. That you have to, it is through struggle that you grow. And uh, the way I like to talk about it is friction, right? We we learn in, in physics that friction is a force that opposes motion. So when you have friction, things 
have a difficulty moving and yet without friction, you can't move forward. Think about that. Without that force that opposes your motion, we wouldn't be able to walk, right? Because every step will move you along and you will slip and fall. So you need that force to oppose you so you can push against it so you can move forward. So this is a law that is embedded in the fabric of our universe, that it takes work to progress. And anybody who robs you of work is going to rob you of progression, which in turn will rob you of happiness. I know we're running short on time. I wanted to ask you um, your opinion on one other subject. And that is, I believe that we have a huge problem with victim mentality here in the States right now, whether it's I'm a woman, so I can't do this, or, you know, there is systematic racism, so I can't ever get to where I want to go because the man's holding me back or whatever. How do you respond to those? Do you believe that? Or no, is that not the case? And people are using that as an excuse. So the way I like to look at it is I don't presume to understand how people see the world. And, and the best analogy, and I've said this a few times, so if anybody's heard this, I think it bears repeating. My best analogy for that is um, a, a couple of years ago, I purchased one of these virtual reality headsets. And one of the games in that headset is called the Plank experience, the plank experience. And what it is, is basically once you put on the headset, it shows you in an elevator, you go up 10 stories high. And then when the elevator opens, you have a plank and you, th this plank is hanging 10 stories high, right? Scary. And it is scary. Now you were in a room prior to putting on the headset, you were in a room with a solid ground and you had no fear of walking in that room. But once you had that headset on, suddenly your reality has changed. And when you watch videos of people going through that experience, it's amazing because they are terrified. They think they're going to fall off a 10-story building where a couple of seconds ago they were standing on solid ground and they know that they're in their own house, in their own room. And so the question is, when you see somebody who appears to have what we call a victim mentality or whatever, the question is, what glasses do they have on? And do they know they have those glasses on? And I think that's why we need to approach those kinds of situations with empathy, because we may not know if this person has been relegated to a certain glass, a certain view of the world that tells them they're hanging 10 stories up and any wrong move will lead to their demise. So I think we need to approach it first with empathy. And then the next step of that process is how can I help take off those glasses? So if I come to you as an immigrant and I say to you, I believe America is still the land of opportunity, then I need to be able to show people how they can take off the glasses of victimhood and see that opportunity themselves. What that means is potentially me giving those opportunities to people, me teaching people about those opportunities. It requires me to do a little bit of self-sacrifice to help people see. 
It's like walking in a desert with someone who is blind and being their eyes and helping direct them towards the oasis that you see ahead of you. Berating the person who cannot see doesn't achieve anything. It makes them just resent you, right? And so if you truly care about our fellow citizens, I think it requires us who believe we are seeing clearly to show them the way. And that requires empathy. That requires us to be in the position with them. You can't stand afar off and help somebody out of a ditch. You have to be close to them. You have to, to be willing to come to their level in order to be able to lift them up. And I think that's what is missing. I think a lot of times we think about um, being logical and we say, hey, why can't they see? Why can't they see? And maybe all it requires is for you to put them on your shoulders so they can see, right? And I think that's what is missing. And that's what we need to rekindle and build. So I think the best way, if you are a believer in opportunity in America is to share that opportunity with others, share the experiences, share the opportunities and open a way for them to be able to see rather than judge them for the way that they've been taught to see. On the day that you became an American citizen, what were you feeling? What was that day like? Oh, 18 years in the making. I had waited 18 years. Um, I tried to record the experience a little bit. And, and for me, I hearkened back to all the prayers, the hundreds and thousands of prayers I'd said over 18 years saying, asking God for an opportunity to be able to remain here permanently and to have all the shackles, proverbial immigration shackles removed. <laughs> and, and for me, that day was the culmination of that dream. Um, the knowledge that I was now part of this idea, the idea of America, the foundation of which I believe is responsible for the enlightenment that we see in the world. And I know a lot of people are going to watch this or listen to this. And some people are going to say, he's just naive. He doesn't really understand how crazy this world is or how crazy America is. And I get that. And I know people are disillusioned. I know people have lost faith in the dream. I know people you know, feel like the dream is no longer for them. But like I said, I believe I'm seeing clearly when I say that this is the land of opportunity. This is the place where you can come from nothing and dare to dream and have that dream come true. Like this is the place, I don't know any other place on earth where you could go and say, I have nothing and have the potential to have everything, right? To, to burst beyond your, your, your personal limits. This is not just about feeding yourself and your family. This is the place where whatever your dream is, it is possible to achieve. And, and I hope that, you know, as I, as I continue to share this message, that this doesn't remain a dream for people. I think at the end of the day, any dream will remain a dream if enough people don't see that dream translated into reality. And so we need to be building avenues and channels and ways for people to actually see their dreams come true. And it starts by first understanding the principles that make this possible. 
principles of freedom, the free market, you know, principles of innovation, entrepreneurship, the principles of, you know, honesty and trustworthiness, all those things are necessary and need to be intertwined in creating the kind of society that allows people to turn dreams into reality. And we need people who have influence to champion those principles and values. And Alma, as we tie up the loose ends here, let us know one more time where we can find your podcast and where we can find you on social media. Right. So the name of my podcast is Restitch America, and you can find this everywhere podcasts are. So on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, all over the place, Pandora, everywhere. So you can get that there. And then also, if you want to follow me on social media, just search for willful positivity. Willful positivity. That's my philosophy. Is something I actually coined myself. Um, willful positivity. So search for that on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, on um, any platform that you love, search for willful positivity or search for my name and it should come up in a Google search. So um, that's how you can find me. My podcast, um, we release a new episode every Wednesday. So once a week, every Wednesday. So check that out. Well, Alma, thank you so much for coming on tonight and speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. We definitely need more time. We need to do this again because I have definitely. so many more questions <laughs> I want to ask you, but I know you're a busy man and you have some place to be, but thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 